Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Uh, how's it going, Sid? Justin, this episode this week is uh, near and dear to my heart. Yes. And yours, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. As I think West, so. As West Virginians, I think this is something that we grew up hearing about, and uh, but, but maybe could learn a little bit more about. Yeah, I think... Sometimes I take for granted, uh, as a, a recipient of a golden horseshoe, I really didn't get a golden Here horseshoe. No, I didn't. I goes. only made it to the state level, and then I didn't. So in West Virginia, we have obviously take West Virginia history. You probably took a history of your state, where you live, probably. Yeah. I would think. It probably wasn't as interesting as ours, but that's fun. <laughs> uh, first settler, West Virginia, that they tell you about is Morgan Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Always remember that. Classic. Not, not much else. Um, no, I, I did not. The, if you if you take the test in West Virginia history and make it to the top, be the best in West Virginia history in the state, then you get a golden horseshoe. I don't know. I'm assuming it's like a physical golden horseshoe, right? Yeah. Each student kneels and with a tap of the sword on the shoulder is dubbed either a knight or a lady of the Golden Horseshoe Society. How did I not? Man, I wish I had done that. Although I would have <sighs> demanded that I want to be a knight. Of course. Of course. I am no lady. Um, but no, I didn't make it that far. I did do well, but not that well. Um, anyway, because of that, sometimes I take for granted that there are aspects of our history, and in this case related to our medical history, that everybody just knows. Yes. Um, but that's not necessarily true. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about something that I take for granted because it's, it's pretty, that it's very common, but that's black lung disease. Um, black lung disease is the the name for it is technically coal workers pneumoconiosis, but I, I think most people are familiar with black lung. Yeah. Um, the history of the disease itself is is deeply entwined with the history of not just coal mining and West Virginia and I mean Appalachia as well. This is not obviously just a West Virginia entity, but that is that is the history I know best. Uh, but also with the history of labor unions mm -hmm. and workers' rights. Um, mm -hmm. All of that is tied very tightly to our understanding of black lung disease, what causes it, and the continued effort to, you know, diagnose it yeah, and treat it or perhaps, dare no. I say, prevent it yeah. effectively. Hey, why not? Uh, so first of all, it, I don't know how much if, if you haven't been exposed to this since birth, <laughs> how much everyone is familiar with sort of the history of coal mining 
and unionization. I think everybody's probably somewhat familiar with it. Um, it it's something that we talk about so much in school that like you don't hear the word matewan and not know exactly what somebody's referencing. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to just briefly kind of cover that piece of the history because it, it does it is relevant. It does tie into where we go with black lung. So first of all. As you may already know, the coal companies came in to the Appalachian region, mm-hmm. you know, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Virginia, Ohio, all different parts of this area that that have coal, <laughs> and um, basically plundered all of our natural resources. Hey, it's still very rude, by the way. <laughs> Destroyed our mountains, polluted our air and our water. Um, generations suffer not nice. from a wide variety of environmentally related diseases as a result of this industry. Yes. Um, this is this is not news, I think. And, and the mining happens all over the world, obviously. And if you live anywhere where this specific type of mining, you know these specific issues. And any mining causes damage to the environment and to the people who live in that environment. Um, however, they also employed, like, everybody for a while. Yeah. Not so much now, but for a long time— that's if you want very, to work here, that's where you were working. Yeah, if you wanted to feed your family, this was your option. And, you know, coal companies usually owned and run from out of state. Right. Um, but but the laborers were people in state, had little concern for the safety of miners. Um, especially when we're talking about like the early days of mining, like the early days of industrialization, the idea that the people who were doing the hard labor had value was not necessarily intrinsic. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still something maybe we struggle with as an American society, the idea that people who do hard work, you know, deserve to be safe and cared for and compensated. Um, But they uh, basically held their employees hostage, in a sense, by paying them in scrip. So this was money issued by the coal company that could only be used in businesses run and owned by the coal company. Um, so in in the little mining town, if you were an employee of the mining industry, you would probably live in a house that was built by the mining industry. You would shop at the company store that was built and owned and run and operated by the mining industry. Um, the church in your town was probably built by the coal company. The park, if you had one, was built by the coal company. The whole ecosystem was... Completely beholden. Yes, to the coal company. And and because of that, living and working conditions were subject to whatever the, the you know, the big, big business cats. <laughs> Whoa. Careful there. <laughs> Thought were. Lenny Bruce really going after him. <laughs> Thought was acceptable. Che Guevara. <laughs> the big business cats in their big boardrooms of business. <laughs> Sheesh. It's a, I, I try not to get too emotional about this issue because the history of West Virginia is that we live in a state where most of our land is owned by people who don't live in our state, mm-hmm. which is – that statement still makes me it's so wild. angry. Yeah, people just milked all the money out of here and mm-hmm. then left. I'm not saying we're perfect, guys, because I know there are a lot of you out there right now saying like, yeah, but Joe Manchin and like, no. Yeah, we get it. We get it. We get it. <laughs> Well, um, you have to understand the roots of the thing. This is the a people who have never expected any better, and this is why. Like, this is why. We And we talked about this sort of idea, what I'm trying to – the picture I'm trying to paint. We talked about this same concept with the Great Fog of London, mm-hmm. the idea that um, 
when we when we talked about the similar event that happened in the United States, mm-hmm. that the idea of an industry sort of both abusing but also employing an entire town creates this weird loyalty among the people who are being most abused by the industry mm-hmm. to that industry, you know? And it gets really, it's really hard to protect people sometimes because this is also their only livelihood. It's the only option they have. This is mm-hmm. the job. You do this or you starve. And if you got a family support, to support, then your kids starve. Um, but by the end of the 1800s and throughout the turn of the century, there were calls for organization, right? And this was getting louder and louder. There, there was the United Mine Workers of America was already in existence, and they had organized strikes in several different states. Um, violence was part of this interaction pretty much from the beginning, um, not necessarily always on the part of the miners, but the people who were trying to suppress the strikes and stamp out the unions. Um in West Virginia, miners in Paint Creek and Cabin Creek had already started to strike in 1912, that early. Um, but the Baldwin Feltz detectives who were employed by the mining industry basically to uh, sniff out any sort of union activity right. and stop it by any means necessary um, – would, uh, you know, use intimidation, violence, turn your family out on the street if yeah. they if they yeah. found any of this sort of thing going on. Now, of course, this culminated in West Virginia in, you know, when I said Matewan, the Matewan Massacre of 1920, um, which was basically the result of some of the miners in that area who, and Matewan is a tiny little coal town down on the border of West Virginia uh, Kentucky, I believe. Miners who signed up for the United Mine Workers of America were about to be evicted from their homes for, for signing up for the union by Baldwin Feltz agents. But the police chief in Matewan said Hatfield and the mayor of the town actually both were on their side. They were on the miner's side. They were not in cahoots with the agents of the coal company. Mm-hmm. And so when they showed up to evict people, the police chief stepped in, the mayor stepped in, they were like, mm, come on, we, you know, we're not going to do this. No, this is not going to fly. And there is a disputed account of who shot first. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the violence started and by the end, 11 people were killed. There's a film about this. If yes. you're completely unfamiliar, John Sayles made called Mate One. Came out in 87. Sid Hatfield was uh, uh, David Strathairn. Oh, I didn't realize that. Who returned. To do another West Virginia movie. Triumphantly returned for We Are Marshall. That's right. Uh, David J. Theron, basically on a road West Virginia at this point. Because of this, Hatfield was brought up on charges, which he was acquitted of. But um, later, he would be brought up on conspiracy charges, again, for like, well, but you helped the unions. Even if you're not in trouble for this, you're in trouble for this other thing. And he was gunned down on the courthouse steps during that trial. In response to that, an army of thousands of miners would march to the coal company in Mingo County to demand that they be recognized as a union. And on the way, in their path of their march from right outside Charleston to the coal company, that's our capital, they had to get over Blair Mountain. This is, a, if you know where I'm going with this. Um So they were met atop Blair Mountain by the Logan County Sheriff and his officers, and fighting broke out. And this is the Battle of Blair Mountain. This is a battle. A battle that we did here. Yes. um, When the uh, President Harding had to send U.S. Army troops into West Virginia to back 
the Logan County Sheriff <laughs> to suppress um, the the mining, the the unionization, the the striking of the miners. Um, after several days of fighting, 16 men, including 12 miners, were dead. And this really put a dent in union activity until the 30s. The, yeah. the UMWA really struggled to stay alive after this military action to stop the unions. But I think if you have ever looked at West Virginia and wondered, this is not as much the case anymore. It's semi the case of Joe Manchin. If you've ever looked at West Virginia in the past and thought, how did Democrats keep winning in, in such an incredibly red state? This is what, like, this is, this is, this, this is, is it. This right? is this the is, moment because. You have to understand this event here because it is like, it goes to like union, it, like they fought, they literally like died for it. Like, yeah. So like, yeah, it, we're a couple generations out now and obviously so those ties don't run as deep, but like that is how Democrats went, won here for so long. Well, it's, it's ridiculous that we come from this history to just this year in our state legislature, we passed you know, union busting legislation to stop the teachers unions. Yeah. Because they were, you know, powerful and using their power to do the right thing on behalf of students. And they didn't like that. Anyway, this is also interesting part of so the the term redneck, the yeah. where that term came from is often sort of disputed. The the original impetus of the word is probably from farmers who would get sunburns on their necks. Mm-hmm. And would be called rednecks. It is often used to refer to these early miners who were organized, part of the UMWA, these early striking miners who would wear red handkerchiefs around their necks hmm. and were therefore called rednecks. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, yeah. you know, history of the term. But anyway, it wouldn't be until FDR that real support for labor rights grew. And this is where you get this um, democratic origin story of West Virginia. All of these uh, union-backed Democratic um, candidates took office and won during the 30s um, because the Democratic Party was the party of, for unions. They were the party for laborers, for workers' rights. That's where you went. Right. Um, and so as a result, uh, there was more and more support for the workers. Um, obviously, now I don't want to overstate too much. They were still making sure the coal companies were happy. Sure, there's a yeah. long history of that here. Like nobody wanted to. Yes, we wanted to support our our miners because they're voters, but we also don't want these industries to get too angry with us because they employ all of us and they also give the elected officials Souls. lots of money. Well, that's more accurately, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and sometimes they are our elected officials. Like our governor, perhaps. A coal baron. Yes. And failed businessman. (laughs) So anyway, uh, it was this force that I have just sort of described. Because at this point, throughout the 30s, like the the mining union grows and by like 46, it's it's huge. You know, the the it is a huge presence throughout all of Appalachia, throughout the mining industry, and definitely in West Virginia. Um, the unions fighting for safer conditions to like, you know, pay work, pay miners in money, maybe Yay, like why actual, not? you know, yeah, money. Let them shop other um, places. that they have like living conditions that are, you know, livable, uh, and sanitary and working conditions that are safer. I wouldn't say completely safe, but safer. So, uh, throughout the first night through the first half of the 1900s mining during this whole time is becoming more and more mechanized, right? We're going from a time where like, I don't know, you're going in there with whatever, 
pick a pick a pick a pickaxe yeah and a shovel and a bucket and and you're going into drilling and and ways to get into there faster um which is good in some ways you know for the miners themselves i mean for the laborious parts of the process but it's bad for specifically coal dust you know um Mm -hmm. Even as we see some improvements in the mines in terms of explosions and cave-ins, you see more and more coal dust being created. And as more and more coal dust is being kicked up by these machines, we see that more and more coal miners are developing what was initially sort of just vaguely referred to as miner's asthma. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this starts to be recognized really early on in the process. It's one of those things, you know how like, Everybody pretends that we didn't know smoking was bad for us. Right, yeah. Until the Surgeon General issued that report. grandparents all the time. Like, we Mm -hmm. didn't know it was bad for us back then. Well, my grandparents didn't tell me that. My grandpa said, you know, we always say that, but I used to call them coffin nails back in the day. So, like, we knew something was up. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same thing. We knew that there was something bad about inhaling lots of coal dust for a long time. And we just sort of vaguely called it, you know, you got miner's asthma. But we didn't know how bad that was until this mechanization started to take place. And this is where I want to get into black lung and the history of that. But first, let's head to the billing department. Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McQuarrie fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McElroy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the 
easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. I'm Riley Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like, why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And I'm I was two butts, 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 butts. So minor's asthma, as it was initially called, was not always seen on x-rays. Once Mm -hmm. we had x-rays, you couldn't always see it right away. So people would come in with some shortness of breath. Maybe it's a little harder to get up and down stairs or to do the work that they were previously doing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they had a cough or something. Um, but it wasn't always obvious at first what was going on. Now, eventually what they begin to see in some minors is this condition that started with some, what looked like maybe some asthma or chronic bronchitis or emphysema, similar to maybe the picture in some of the minors who were also smokers, that kind of thing. Um, what they did see was that in some patients, it progressed to low oxygen levels, necessitating, you know, the use of oxygen, eventually being completely debilitated. And in some patients, it was fatal. Um, And when they did start to see that there was a corollary to things on x-rays, what they saw were these small, round nodules initially. And then eventually this could progress to these larger, um, what we would know on autopsy were black masses in the lungs with dead tissue in the middle and then eventually sometimes complete fibrosis of the lungs, which is sort of like thickening scarring of the lungs. And as you can imagine, our lungs are supposed to be bouncy and elastic. And when they are thick and scarred, they don't work very well. Yeah, it's bad. They don't get – the oxygen doesn't exchange through them very well to get into your bloodstream and they don't allow you to inhale and exhale effectively. Um, So what is happening in this condition is when you inhale coal dust, it never goes away. Okay. Your body can't clear it. You just keep, it just stays in It's there. in you, your you lungs. Have mechanisms for that. Yes. So you inhale it, it gets into your lungs, it gets into the little air sacs, the alveoli. Macrophages, which are a type of immune cell, will like try to engulf it, try to eat it to get okay. rid of it. Um, but once it gets engulfed by the macrophage, it just sort of sits there in your lungs. And then it triggers this immune response. So in the area around it, you get inflammation and scarring. And the more you accumulate of these little, little teeny, teeny cells filled with coal dust, the more of those that clump together 
the more damage you get, the more inflammation, the more scarring, right? Is this a unique reaction to, in the case of coal dust, or are there other, like, uh, infiltrators in our lungs that work the same way? This is very similar to silicosis. So if you inhale silica, it's the same idea. And that, and a lot of the— Why would um, I inhale silica? What is that? If you, well, I mean, in part, in coal mining, you do inhale silica, too, because that's part of the, the coal— there's silica in there, so there's silica dust. But in, in different industries where silica is being processed, you can inhale it. And then initially, that's what they tried to say about coal mining. Well, this is just another form of silicosis. It's nothing different. Mm. Um, we, we don't need to distinguish this as a clinical entity. It took a while to figure out that, like, well, there's silica in coal, but also that the coal dust itself is a problem, which you'd think you'd know from, like, looking at lung tissue and seeing – these black areas that yeah. are filled with coal dust um, that probably shouldn't be there. Anyway, the longer you work in the mines, the more you inhale. And this can go from everything from like someone who lives in an urban area or probably lived in these coal fields who inhaled a lot of coal dust regularly would have anthracosis, which is just sort of like a little bit of evidence of this, but not necessarily progressive to any sort of actual disease, just yeah. like something you might see on autopsy, mm-hmm. but, but wouldn't necessarily be relevant in your life. Two co-workers pneumoconiosis and then progressing to complete pulmonary fibrosis, which is the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, so there's a range and the longer you work, the more you inhale, the more risk you're at. The U.S. Public Health Service started studying this and investigating it as its own condition as early as 1924, reporting on incidents of this. And again in 1945. And they knew about it in Britain because in 1943, they took the step of officially recognizing Yes, there is a lung condition specifically related to coal mining. So, again, we knew this was a problem. Somebody figured it out. Somebody figured it out. They figured it out in the UK. Um, But in the US, the standard medical opinion is that, look, if you work in a mine, it's going to hurt your lungs a little. So stop whining, stop complaining, stop being lazy, Mm. and get back to work. And that was really how it was seen initially. Like, just because we saw something on an x-ray doesn't mean it's a problem. Like, man up. I mean, that was really the the kind of the attitude. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until the 60s when rates of disease really started to climb because of increased mechanization. Uh, and that's when you see this sort of demand for action that followed. Um, the other reason it took a while for anything to happen is that union leadership had been really reluctant to fight this issue. The the actual mine workers themselves, like the union, you know, didn't, they they wanted to focus on pensions. They wanted they had other priorities they wanted to focus on. And the other thing is, for a while, uh, the UMWA president was pretty friendly with the coal companies mm-hmm. and wasn't really necessarily wanting to pick big fights with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew that this black lung thing was going to be a big battle once they undertook it. Um, the only reason that finally changed is there was a, a large mine explosion in Farmington, West Virginia in 1968. And uh, during the coverage of this event, the UMWA president was seen like standing alongside coal company def- like officials defending them and saying, basically, like, I mean, the attitude, which is just wild to think about, is part of your job as a coal miner means that sometimes things might explode and you might die. Or sometimes the whole thing caves in and you might die. And that's just it. Yeah. And you should accept it. 
And then, and then, like, the idea that we should be doing more to keep you safe is really just not accepting the inherent dangers of your job. Yeah. Um, which is like gaslighting, basically. Yeah. So this led to outrage. It led to a change in union leadership, the whole company. This was also a time period, if we're talking about the late 60s, where the idea that our workers should be respected and that they needed to be, they, that they had their own rights was a lot more fashionable. You know, if you think about, like, the cultural milieu of the late 60s, early 70s, you know, yeah, the hippies and all that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they were a lot more that likely to, to fight uh, big business yeah. and the suits. So... Suddenly, mining safety became a priority, not just in West Virginia, but of, like, the Nixon administration on a federal level. Because of the explosion. Because of this explosion and because of all this issue with the union, um, the issue of black lung suddenly could be added to the table. So, first of all, on the state level in West Virginia, miners wanted to start organizing to make sure that when the next session came up, something was going to be passed to prevent and— recognize, like prevent black lung and recognize it as an entity and compensate those who are no longer able to work or who have died or, yeah. you know, from black lung. So first, some miners in Fayette County. There are a ton of counties in West Virginia. Yeah, we got a lot of counties. We got now. so many counties. Unbelievable. It's, it's ridiculous. We're so little. We got so many counties. So a bunch of miners in Fayette County enlisted some doctors to like work Kentucky, with them. Kentucky, though. Kentucky got a lot, too. Yeah. Kentucky's right across the river there, just just county after county after county. We just, it's it's these, uh, these states have, like, they have all these little counties, which are all these little fiefdoms, where everybody gets to run the show in their right. own way. It's a problem. 120 anyway. counties, by the way. 120. <laughs> in Kentucky? In Kentucky. Can you we only that? got 55. Yeah, I know. So, like, let's, you know, hey, Kentucky, <laughs> how about remove the plank from thine own eye? I don't know? think, I don't think Kentucky was yelling about this. You don't know. You don't know who's listening. Some Kentuckian was like, what about all the counties? Uh, first, miners in Fayette County enlisted a couple doctors to help them explain to other miners, this is what black lung is. This is what's causing it. This is, you know, something that you should be compensated for because they could be doing things to reduce dust and they're not. And as a result, you've got this condition. Right. And so first there was the education piece. Then the organizing started to spread. And in January of 1969, miners met in our capital, Charleston, to rally for legislation on the state level. Um, after that, 282 miners in Raleigh County went on strike. Then most of Southern West Virginia followed. Um, by February of that year, 2,000 miners gathered in the state capital to demand a bill to address it that session. Um, at first, they were told, like, listen, maybe we'll do a special session later and address this later. Like, go, please go back to the mines. Please go go do your work. We'll get to it. We, we hear you. We hear you. We see you. We're going to get to it. And so they moved into the lobby um, <laughs> to say, no, nope, we're not leaving. So they introduced a pretty weak bill in the House and said, like, well, how about this? Does this work? And the miners said, actually, all 40,000 of us, every miner in the state, went on strike. Right. And said, and a bunch of them came to the Capitol and said, no, not until you do something about black lung. So as a result of this, a much better bill was passed on a state level to recognize, try to prevent, and compensate those who have suffered from black lung. Um, this inspired Congress to pass the Coal Mine Health and Safety Act, where standards were placed on, like, coal dust particles that were created to try to prevent the condition. And there is also a federal black lung program, which is mainly aimed at compensating uh, the surviving family members of yeah. someone who has died of black lung, um, which still exists today, of course. Um, and... The thing is, uh, you know, this seemed to address things for a while. Like, 
black lung benefits were robust and there was a robust program and, and a lot of impetus on coal companies. Because like if you're going to have to pay out a lot of money when somebody gets black lung, you probably want to do better to try to prevent it. Which you can do by finding ways to decrease the production of coal dust in the industrial well, here's process. What was, here's what I was going to say, and then I don't actually understand, and maybe you can maybe you understand this better than me. Um, why, why can't they just wear some sort of breathing? They do that apparatus. I mean, why does it? But that doesn't. It's not effective. Well, it's in not. It's it? not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is like enforcement of that. Uh, yeah. Part of it was the comfort, too. I mean, to be fair, a lot of miners have told me before it's incredibly uncomfortable in a coal mine, and then you put on one of these big masks, and it's almost impossible to breathe down there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all what plays into this is the idea that, like, and this still exists today, coal miners are expected to work long, brutal shifts yeah. with no complaints and to just show up whenever. I mean, like, the loyalty they're expected to show to the coal company, that still persists today. Um, so, I, you know, it's a it's a difficult pro- problem to tackle. The coal companies had the money to tackle it. Yeah. The problem is that um, over the years, the mining companies got tired of paying out so many millions to miners, and the standards for reporting have gotten a lot stricter. They have lobbied to make it a lot harder to get diagnosed and qualify for black lung benefits. That's been the main way. Like, okay, fine, we'll have this really robust benefit program. We're just going to make sure that a lot fewer people get it. For a while, cases of black lung were dropping, but they're actually back on the rise. Mm. But compensation rates for black lung disease have dropped dramatically. And in addition, you see things like very recently, um, now I am going to throw shade at Kentucky. I, I, didn't, I don't mean to. Sorry. We Hey, listen, you can throw plenty back our yeah. way. Um, but, uh, in 2016, there is a radiologist in Pikeville, Kentucky, not too far from us, um, Dr. Brandon Crum, who started noticing, uh, he's a radiologist, and he started noticing this uptick in diagnoses of black lung disease, which you can diagnose by looking at an x-ray and seeing it. That's how you diagnose it, by the way. You see certain patterns on an x-ray, and you combine that with, um, sometimes like a blood gas that we draw to look at levels of gas in your in your arter, arterial blood, um, and a uh, and just a history of mining, history of exposure. Um, but anyway, so he he started noticing a lot more of these chest X rays that were consistent with black lung disease. Um, he called this to the attention of um, NIOSH, which is the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Uh, so he called it to the attention of NIOSH, and he was like, "I'm seeing more black lung disease here." Right, uh, and just in his his clinic, not like just like way too many cases for just one area. And so he called this to their attention. NIOSH followed up with some research in conjunction with Dr. Crum and it, and they said, yeah, you're right. No, this is happening. You're the only ones calling attention to it right now. You're the whistleblower, but like black lung is on the rise and nobody's talking about it. And some follow-up research indicated that like one in five minors are going to get some form of this disease which is way above what we previously had thought. Um, And so when this was brought to more broad attention, Kentucky responded by passing House Bill 2 in 2018, which restricted the doctors who can diagnose black lung to only pulmonologists, which was pretty targeted, specifically making this radiologist um, incapable of diagnosing black lung disease moving forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also... Currently, there are only two doctors in the state who do the final certification. So basically, like, your doctor can say you have black lung disease, but then 
the the state can appeal it to one of these two assigned like doctors in the state who are allowed to do the final review. Mm-hmm. And these two doctors who do the final review, who can, by the way, their word can overturn, even if you have eight other doctors who say you have black lung disease, if this doctor, one of these two who review your case, if they say you don't, you don't. And that's final. And they do overturn that. In 85% of cases, they overturn it. Both of these doctors, allegedly, according to the articles I've read, I don't know the details, allegedly have ties to the coal industry. And both of these doctors are very likely to say, actually, no, you don't have black lung disease, so therefore you don't you don't uh, qualify for any compensation or benefits. Um and the thing is that's really wild to me about this is like pulmonologists totally can read x-rays, no doubt. I have I have worked with many pulmonologists who are wonderful at reading x-rays. I am certain that they can diagnose black lung. But yeah, so can radiologists actually. Yeah. Since reading um, x-rays and other radiological studies is sort of their entire thing, that's what they do, I am certain Dr. Crum and other radiologists are perfectly capable of diagnosing this. So why specifically would they make this rule? Who does it help? It also, in the past year during COVID, was incredibly restrictive if you had to travel to one of the two doctors. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Who could do the final evaluation during COVID. The result is that also um, the percentage of, of black lung cases that have actually found to qualify for compensation has dropped dramatically. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. What an amazing twist. Um. Alongside this is the fact that coal companies have, since inception, found ways to skirt regulation, falsify dust readings that's been found in cases, um, failed to meet safety standards. We still have, you know, cave-ins and explosions. It's not like that is just a thing of the past. Um, That still happens periodically. And it's because at the end of the day, it is an industry that is built on abusing laborers as much as you can get away with to make as much money out of them as you possibly can. And to um, make as much money off the land as you possibly can while leaving it in whatever condition the state will allow. And also to to convince people, to generationally convince people in these areas that it is – that any sort of effort to make it safer – uh, both for them personally and for the environment is a targeted, you know, attack on them. Like ecolo- ecological efforts uh, to prevent the damage of burning fossil fuels mm-hmm. is an attack on them and their way of life, which is an idea that has like been perpetrated and reinforced by coal companies for generations. Oh, it's really hard. It, this is so, by the way, I should mention there was a bill that, tried to overturn this introduced in the Kentucky legislature this past session, but it died in committee. So this is still a problem. In West Virginia, this doesn't exist. There's no other state actually where they've taken the um, this sort of tactic that Kentucky has. But it is not easy necessarily to get black lung benefits anywhere. In West Virginia, that is something that um, coal miners have routinely lobbied for mm-hmm. uh, and no bills have really ever gotten much traction to try to make it a little easier to get black lung benefits and to close some of the loopholes Um, Coal companies have a lot of ways of just sort of prolonging this process. So like, yeah, you might get it, but it'll take you 10 years to get those benefits, um, which you might not have in some of these cases. So um, 
that they've this is a problem all over. And even the miners who are fighting to make it easier to get black lung benefits will still talk about, you know, part of the problem. Like we're understanding of the coal companies. We're sympathetic to the fact that there is a war on coal. Yeah. And our coal companies are under attack and we don't want to be part of that. We just our lungs have been destroyed from inhaling all the coal dust in their coal mines and we can't breathe and we can't work if we can't breathe and we have no way to support our families because we can't work because we can't breathe. So if you please could just give us, you know, enough money to live off of. I mean, that's really the argument. And, it, and it's hard as somebody who's outside of that industry. Like we we don't have relatives in the coal mining industry. I mean, no. I don't think you do. No. No. We, we have always lived in West Virginia, but that's not – that's not our family. Um, but this gets so personal if you talk to people. And even this doctor who is a hero for calling attention to this, um, even he will say, like, I have family in the coal industry. I'm not trying to do this to destroy the coal industry. I'm just saying, like— But that is the that is the wild thing about it is that these coal companies have cast themselves as, as the victims because they are being, you know, persecuted— Yes. For the damage they are doing to the environment, like, and they have done, they have done a remarkable job of marketing that to the people they are abusing, to you, the people that they are killing you with this industry. Go, I mean, every tenth car in this in this state has a bumper sticker on it that says "Friends of Coal." For a long time, the the comp, the uh, when Marshall and WVU were playing each other, it was the the Friends of Coal Bowl. Why does coal need friends? Like it's, coal doesn't need friends. Coal's a rock. <laughs> like it, it is it, really. Yeah. It's really twisted. It I mean, was it's genuinely disturbing. I I I received criticism as a what was I in sixth grade? I did a science fair project on the effects of acid mine drainage on the environment. And I was criticized for that. Like, well, okay, maybe, but, you know, the coal industry is, you know, that that is West Virginia. How dare you mm-hmm. a- associate them with these bad things when, like, that's just the cost. So much of it is seen as the cost of doing business. The, and the, the human lives that are affected and the health and the years of, of of life and productivity and healthy living and all that that's lost, the environmental damage. I mean, because if we— if we, this is not just a health crisis for these miners. This industry is a health crisis for the whole state. I mean, if you if you really want to get into the sort of environmentally linked diseases that we see in West Virginia, the cancers that we see, um, how much of our water is toxic. And I know this isn't just a West Virginia problem. I know there are lots of places in the United States where this happens and all over the world. And that's another thing to remember about this um, mining. And that was the last thing I wanted to say. Mining happens all over. Coal mining happens all over. I think once again, we are quite literally the canary in this situation in in Appalachia mm-hmm. because uh, what this what this again, I can't I want to meet this guy. He's only in Pikeville. I gotta hang out with him sometime. What he has called attention to with this uptick in cases of black lung um, is gonna it's gonna happen every we're gonna see it everywhere. we're we're something is going wrong, and we're destroying a lot of people's lungs. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get, like, I mean, not to get too nihilistic about it, but, like, reduction of workers' rights, depowering the unions, like, it's not even just this. I mean, this is oh no one version of this story that you're going to hear repeated 
ad nauseum. Well, and maybe at the end of the day, it's a good reminder that, and as a West Virginian, I know this you're not supposed to say this, but this is not the best form of energy. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not the future. Yeah. It's not. And I mean, the the cost to the environment, to human life, to, I mean, everything. Is it how, when will it not be worth it to us? Uh, listen, folks, I'm really sorry. Uh, fellow West Virginians, I'm sorry about my wife, Sydney. You know how she gets. <laughs> I support clean coal, which is a, <laughs> is a different kind of coal they found out about a while back. I don't know how they're doing it, but I love the sound of it, folks. And I am just way deep in on clean coal that exists. Uh, th- <laughs> thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. Uh, we got a Sawbones book, both in paperback and hardback. Hard, the paperback's newer. It's got some stuff about uh, quarantine and other things like that, some new illustrations from Sydney Sibling Taylor. It's at bookstores, as you would imagine. Um, places you get books. Places you get books. That's going to do it for us, folks. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.